How do you get from there to here? From my brand new spouse can't do anything wrong. It doesn't seem to matter what they do. It's okay. I'm just glad that we're finally married. I never knew I could be so happy. This is fantastic. How do you get from there to my spouse can't do anything right? It doesn't matter what they do. It always annoys me. I can't believe we ever got married. I never knew I could be so miserable. This is such a drag. From ecstasy to misery, from exuberance to despair, from excitement to apathy. How do you get there? How does a marriage get from joy to sorrow? Well, it's the same way that you get from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3. So let's look at that. The last time we ended uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 11, and tonight we're going to begin in verse 12, but I want to, us to read Genesis 3, 12, right next to Genesis 2, 23. So if you, can, if you can manage this, it should only be about a page apart. Maybe it's on the same page. But I would like for us to first read Genesis 2, 23. Then the man said, This one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, because this one was taken out of man. And in chapter 3, verse 12. And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me to eat from the tree, and I ate. Well, remember what we first learned about how Adam would have said what he did there in chapter 2, verse 23, because that Hebrew phrase implies anticipation. It's not something that we just say. Uh, it's said, we say things like, finally, when we've been looking or waiting for something. So it conveys a whole lot more excitement than what the NAS says, this is now bone of my bones. Um, after looking at all the animals and naming all the animals and futilely looking for a suitable helper and not finding one, God makes one just for him. So there is an inflection that we can insert and inject into this, into this phrase. It would be more like, finally, at last. My Ezer Canigdo, someone who corresponds to me, my indispensable companion, my wife. Remember, whoa, man. Well, from woe man to this woman. Listen to Genesis 3, 12 again, and, and then I'll explain. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. This is Adam responding to God's question, where are you? Which he asked after they hid themselves. Now, we have no reason to believe that they had ever done that, that, it, that they had ever hidden from God. In fact, we have every reason to believe that all that they ever knew would have been sweet communion with God, but they hid because they were afraid. But they were never afraid before. They were afraid because they were naked. 
But they were naked before. They had always been naked. This wasn't a new condition of their experience. So what was different? The only thing different is that they knew that they were naked. So why would the awareness of their nakedness make them afraid? Because the only way that they knew that they were naked was because they disobeyed God by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They caved in to Satan's temptation to be like God. And now they knew something they had never known before. They know evil. And now they find themselves in a brand new condition where, where at one time they were naked and unashamed. Now they are naked and ashamed. And we saw how the first experience of human guilt in the world was expressed by an awareness of being naked. But I'd like us to look closely now at um, Adam's response in Genesis 3, verse 12. Now, I'll tell you, I know absolutely no Hebrew. Um, so I rely on uh, lexicons and helps. And uh, so, but I did learn some things. But in verse 312, the Hebrew construction in this sentence uses what is known as an independent nominative absolute. In this case, it's the woman. And it's roused by the pronoun she, along with the verb gave. The point of this construction is to put emphasis on the woman. She gave. But there's something else that's more critical here, and it can't be missed. You must not miss this. It's very important because it's a whole lot more serious than just blaming the woman. Adam could have just said, the woman gave me and I ate, but that's not all he said. What makes this so telling is that there's another clause. There's a relative clause tucked in here that explains reference to the woman. So look back in the verse, verse 3.12, chapter 3, verse 12. And see what is between the phrase, the woman, and she gave. Do you see it? Whom you gave to be with me. Whom you gave. We could say it this way. Again, the context here would determine the inflection. Adam is saying, the woman that you gave me. This is actually the first back talk. Do you see what's happening here? It looks like Adam's blaming the woman, and he is, but that's not the real serious part. Adam's blaming God. He's blaming God for giving him the woman who caused him to sin. Ultimately, Adam is blaming God for his own sin. Does it get any worse than that, than to blame God for your sin and to question his sovereignty? James 1.13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, 
that gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Death. That's exactly what God said would happen if they disobeyed. So blaming God and questioning his sovereignty is a serious matter. Paul had something to say that in Romans 9.20. He said, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? God is perfect. God is sovereign. Everything he does is perfect. And marriage is a gift. The verse we started with at the very beginning of this series comes right after the verses that we just read in James. James 1.17 says, Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. But someone says, and Adam was probably saying this now, the gift I got isn't perfect. Yes, it's true, no one's perfect. But what God gives is perfect for you. How then should we respond when God gives a gift? What should be our attitude? If it's not thankfulness, then it's sin. Remember our verse in 1 Thessalonians? In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There is a definite link between thankfulness and affection. The more thankful you are for something, the more you appreciate it. And the more you'll take care of it. A person will cherish what he's thankful for. A thankless person is completely unmotivated to appreciate anything and they won't take care of anything that, that you give them. Or they're like, yeah, whatever. I talked last time about thankfulness regarding the gift of marriage. When God gives us a person made in His image. I believe that our degree of thankfulness for this gift speaks loudly about how much we value the one that God gave us and how much we even value God Himself. Do we love God with all of our being? It really starts there, doesn't it? Jesus said it does. I will tell anyone who's thinking about getting married, be sure that the one that you're about to marry loves Jesus more than they love you. And I'll promise you this, the beauty that emanates from that person will be an unimaginable beauty that will be an indescribable attraction that will, that will surpass anything that you could ever behold with your physical eyes. I love how 1 John speaks about love. In chapter 4, verses 9 through, excuse me, 7 through 9, and in verse 16, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 
By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And in this from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Now then, this is how it works in a marriage when love is rightly ordered. The love that a husband and a wife have for each other is really the love of God flowing through each other, one to another. When two people come together like that and live together like that, there is no wedge in the world that can penetrate it. It would be like trying to drill or trying to bore through titanium with a rubber drill bit. Not even Satan himself can drill through marriage like that. Why? Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I told Carolyn I was going to do this. I would never embarrass this woman for anything in the world. But if you'll allow me to get personal just for a few minutes, many of you know that Carolyn and I met on, uh, on eHarmony 20 years ago. Now, I don't know that I would recommend doing that nowadays. That's uh, it's 20 years ago. It's a whole lot different now, I believe. In fact, it'll be 20 years ago, 18 days from now. On May the 28th, we were matched on that, on that interface. The, the profile that you had to fill out was just very intense. You had to fill out the, a profile that took me about two hours. And then, then you're given a match. And uh, you're asked uh, questions that they present. There are these canned questions, but they were a whole lot more serious than like, what's your favorite color and things like that. And then, then you're given the opportunity to ask your own questions. And I'll never forget one of the questions that she asked me. <laughs> it was the most important question. Her question, are you ready? Do you want to hear it? <laughs> Who is Jesus Christ? Who do you say that he is? Well, I'll tell you, that just lit me up. What a joy it was to answer that question. And man, I couldn't wait to meet her in person. In fact, our first face-to-face -face meeting was almost exclusively talking about the doctrines of grace. Our first time to meet face-to-face, -face, and we were talking about theology and, and, and so forth. Well, thank you for that. Um, I asked at the start of this lesson, how, do you, how did we get there? How did we get here from there? How did it go from joy to sorrow? As we saw last time, everything now, after this fall, is out of order. This is a broken marriage now. There's only mistrust and blame shifting. Love is replaced by exploitation. There's certainly no thankfulness now. The curse is on. So let's read about it, beginning in verse 13. Genesis 3, 
beginning in verse 13, and we'll read all the ways through verse 19, please. Uh, Once again this evening, I, I am reading through in the Legacy Standard Bible, page four. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than any of the cattle and more than any beast, every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and conception and pain you will bear children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, excuse me, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God curses the serpent. Women will suffer pain in childbirth. Work will be hard. The ground will be cursed. People will get sick. People will die. But I want us to focus on how it affects husbands and wives now. We see it in verse 16 as God speaks to the woman and says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I remember as a new Christian learning about creation and the fall and I would read that and think, Okay, so a woman's desire a woman's desire will be for her husband. And I thought, how's that a problem? I I don't see the problem here, um, especially for a man. I don't see how a man would have a problem with being the desire of his wife. I could definitely see how a wife would have a problem with her husband ruling over her. But the wife desiring her husband, I I didn't see that as a curse. In fact, it sounded too much like a blessing to me more than a curse. But that didn't make sense either because the Bible teaches that this is a curse. So, So what about it? Well, the word, the English word desire is found 79 times in the Old Testament. But I found out that not all 79 times, in those 79 times, it's not from the same Hebrew word. There are 19 Hebrew words that are translated into the word desire. This particular form in this passage right here only appears three times. One of them's here, 
One of them is Song of Songs, and the other one is in Genesis 4, which I would ask you to turn to. Remember the story of Cain and Abel. Remember how they both brought in offerings to God, but in uh, chapter 4, verse 5, it tells us that God had no regard for Cain's offering. So Cain got angry. So if you would, let's read Genesis 4, verses 4, excuse me, verses 6 and 7. Then Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door and its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. And what does sin desire to do? It desires to control you. It desires to be master over you and to reign in your life. Paul tells us in Romans 6 not to let that happen. Because of Christ, we are dead to sin. And he exhorts exhorts us to not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And that sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Other translations say it this way. I was reading from the legacy, as I said. The NAS says it the same way. The ESV says it this way. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The the Net Bible, the New English translation says it this way. You will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. This first couple is now no longer other-oriented. They each want what's best for themselves. And now that means to be in control. What is this if it's not a power struggle? Genesis 3.16 now declares the conflict between man and woman, which will continue to be the human experience throughout history. The battle of the sexes is on, and it didn't start as a game show in the 70s. It started right here. This is the curse on marriage. The woman will want to control the man, and the man will want to rule the woman. Okay, so now what? Are marriages doomed to exist in this constant fight for control? Well, yes. According to what we just read, which is the Word of God, it will. God said to the woman, you will and he will. If God says something, we know that it will happen and we know that because God's word is true and he cannot lie. But we also know because we see struggling marriages all around us. The details of the struggles may be different, but they all have Genesis 3.16 in common. There aren't any exceptions. Remember, this is where depravity gets launched. You know the verses, Romans 3, verse 11 and 12, there is none who understands there is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. We know this is the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity. We are totally depraved. It doesn't mean that we are as corrupt as we could be. 
but it does mean that our total person is corrupt. There is no section of goodness or sliver of righteousness in us, not in any of us. There aren't any exceptions. When it says none, that's what it means. So when two depraved people come together, there's a problem from the beginning. Yeah, but someone says, I, I know this couple and they're not Christians and they have a great marriage. In fact, their marriage is better than some Christian marriages that I know. How do you explain that? Well, the same way they get the same reign that everybody else does. It's grace. Whatever measure of blessing that anyone experiences all because of God's grace, he decides who and how that gets meted out. But they presume on his grace just like every believer does. They skate all over it. And one day to their eternal destruction if they don't repent. This is what the Apostle Paul would tell them from Romans 2. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the judge, righteous judgment of God. So a quick summary. God said it wasn't good for the man to be alone. So he created woman and ordained marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The Bible says they were naked and none ashamed. There was no sin. This was the perfect couple. This was a perfect union. But they disobeyed God and sin entered the world. And now everything is cursed as both man and the woman will fight for control. How in the world will this ever work? Well, remember something that we talked about in the first session. If there's one thing that's needed for anything to work properly, order. Even though there's no longer any perfect order here, God hasn't scrapped it. He still has an intended order. And we can see it, I believe, right here at the fall. Look again in Genesis 3. Verse 9. Notice what, it, notice what it does not say. Notice that it does not say that God called to the woman. It doesn't even say that He called to both of them. No, it says that He called to the man. That is significant. I think order can be seen right here. And what I mean by that is when God wants an account of what happened, he calls to the man. What is this if it's not God holding man responsible, holding this man responsible? Or else he, would have called, he wouldn't have called just for him. He could have called for the woman or called for both of them, both of them but he didn't. He called for Adam. Even though it was the woman who ate and then gave to Adam... God holds Adam responsible. And it will be Adam who represents fallen man. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Verse 17 For 
if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, For since by a man came death. In verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Responsibility for another person or a group of people necessarily implies authority. The curse brought this order, but the only way to retain any kind of order at all, albeit marred now because of sin, there must be delegated authority. That means that there are those who lead and there are those who follow. There are those who submit. We see it even in the Trinity, in the Godhead. In John 6.38, Jesus himself says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's no different in marriage. There must be order. And God has ordered marriage in such a way that husbands leave and wives submit. This is the principle of headship which is taught throughout the New Testament and has been taught here at Grace. The meaning of headship is to be in a position of leadership. And the analogy here is going to be Christ and his church. The only reason that there's controversy about this is because it's been misunderstood and it's been abused. Too many men, and I'm stressing men here, too many men through the years have used the verses that we're about to read to teach that the only way a woman can submit to a man is that the man must naturally be superior. This is completely false. Not that men have done that. What's false is that women are not inferior and man is by no way superior. So we're going to read in uh, Ephesians 5. And my intention here is not to do an exposition on this whole section but I just wanted to point out a few verses. So if you would uh, turn to Ephesians 5 for me, please. And then we're going to read uh, verses 22 to 24. Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. First, I want to be clear about what this does not mean. Because it does not mean that, that women are in any way inferior or that they are in any way slaves to men or servants to men. There's no less dignity here. There's no less importance. There's no less value. Remember the Hebrew word we were, that we learned in the first section? Ezer kenigdo. And we said then, it's, it's the, an indispensable companion. It's one who corresponded to Adam. And we learned that the, the term Ezer kenigdo Ezer Kenigdo in no way could ever imply 
slave or servant or anything less than what she is made in the image of God. Another distortion of this text is that husbands are to make all the decisions without any regard to their wives. But husbands should value the the insight of their wives. They're foolish not to do that. In fact, it's unbiblical. It's sinful if they don't. Sometimes there's an impasse. Uh, Not often, I hope, but when there are, God has given the final say to the husband, who, by the way, must take consequence for any bad decisions that are made because he's ultimately responsible. But it does mean what it says. Wiser to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. That is one heavy submission there. They're to submit to their wives in a way similar to how they would submit to the Lord according to verse 22. By the way, the words be subject aren't not in the original here, but it doesn't take away from the meanings. It just says wives to your husbands, but it's not lost because it's restated again in verse 24. That's an ongoing theme through this whole section of, of Scripture here, submission, even into chapter 6, when children are told to obey their parents and worse, we are to submit to them. Maybe an amusing, an encouragement here that's amusing for wives here. Maybe, I don't know. Verse 22 says to submit to your own husband. You see that word own, your own husband. Not that you're, you don't submit to somebody else's husband. That's not what it means. But the Greek word here that translates into the word own is the Greek word idios. So you can already see what word we get from there, right? We get the word idiosyncrasy, um, meaning personal mannerisms and peculiarities. But we do. We also get the word idiot. So if you wanted to do a very, very loose translation, I guess you could say, wives, submit to your idiot husbands. Submit because the husband is head of the wife. As Christ is head of the church, so the husband is head of the wife. And a word about husbands here in leadership. In verse 23, it says the husband is head of the wife. Verse 23 is not an imperative statement. It's not a command. It is an indicative statement. The husband is the head of the wife. It's not a suggestion that the husband should be or should lead. It says that a husband is already leading. So it's not a matter of if or how he's doing that and where he's leading. He's already leading. It's what kind of leadership is he doing? What kind of leader is he? First Peter 1 First Peter 3, verse 7 says that we're supposed to live with our wives in an understanding way. As with someone weaker, since she's a woman, not inferior, not less intelligent, not less anything. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. As the church is subject to Christ, verse 24 says, so wives also to her husbands. Wives who fight against this aren't just fighting against their husbands. They are fighting against the Lord. But 
One reason that wives struggled with this so much with submission is because husbands make it difficult. Okay, husbands, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. This is the key to all of it. Husbands, love your wives. But it doesn't stop there. We are to love our wives in a certain way as Christ loved the church. How did he do that? Well, we know how he did it. He gave himself up for her. Christ died for his church. Husbands are to be willing to lay down their life for their wives. I'd like us to consider something else, though. Yes, it's true. Christ died for his church, but he also lived for her. Look at his life in the Gospels. You'll never find a time ever that he was doing anything less than ministering. He always had time for people. Husbands, giving up your life doesn't just mean that you're willing to die for her but that you're also willing to live for her. I'm sure your wife appreciates the fact that you would die for her. I think she'd much prefer that you live for her. So what about wives, Dennis? You've hammered on men, but haven't said much about the wives at all. Well, I have something for for you ladies too. Proverbs 12.4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of of her husband. But she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. A wife's deportment is very important to God. Five times in the book of Proverbs, it talks about the contentious woman and how there's not a man who wants to even be near her. But the most beautiful expression of a godly woman's deportment, I think, is found in 1 Peter. Ladies, let your adornment be this. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. What man would not want to be close to that woman? But I've said it before about the few marriages that I've counseled in my years here. I've, I've always been harder on the man. I've always had a whole lot more to say to the man than the husband, than the wife. And it's not, beca- it's not because the wife doesn't have any accountability. But there is an old saying, how goes the husband, so goes the marriage. There is a tremendous responsibility that God places on men, on husbands in their marriage. They are responsible for their home. They set the the tone for their entire marriage domain. As Christ is head of the church, so husbands are head of their homes. It means they exemplify Christ. They are the priest in their home. They are the spiritual leader. Yeah, Husbands are all about, verse 22, wives submit to your husbands. But as I said earlier, verse 25 is the key. Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. You see, if husbands were faithful to do that, wives would have no trouble with verse 22. What woman would not want to follow? I've never heard of a woman 
who said she would have any trouble following the lead and submit to her husband if her husband was Jesus. That wouldn't happen. So husbands, we're supposed to love our wives like that. And when we do that, then wives will submit. And we talked about that how earlier, about what that means and what it doesn't mean. Verse 27, we didn't read that. It says that he might present him to himself, meaning Christ, the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. One day Christ will present to himself his bride, the church. And there is a sense in which one day we will present the greatest gift that we've ever been given as an offering back to God. And so I say this, the greatest blessing a husband can ever give to his wife is to be doing everything he can to be sure that she can give the best account that she can when she is at the judgment seat of Christ. But the only way a husband can love his wife as Christ loved the church is if he is in Christ. And the only way that a wife can submit to her husband as to the Lord as if she's in Christ. We read earlier, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You know, it's hard for me to imagine a perfect world and a perfect marriage. But that's what Adam and Eve had. And, but they disobeyed God and marriage was cursed. In Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. It was Christ that Genesis 3.15 referred to right in the midst of pronouncing that curse. He will crush the serpent's head. The first promise of redemption. And that promise was kept and Satan was defeated at the cross and marriage was redeemed for all who are in Christ. Well, Paul goes on and finishes out chapter 5. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and his church. First, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, right after God joined the first man and woman together in the world's first marriage. Then he states the ultimate reason that God gives the gift of marriage so that it will, it will be a beautiful picture of Christ and his church all to God's glory. Amen. Before I let you go, uh, I need to tell you, thank you for your kind attention again. Um, next week, uh, as Mike said, that we will have our, our family fellowship so there won't, we won't have a class in here We'll have two more of these, uh, actually one more and then a Q&A, and that's really what I want to talk about. There'll be one more lesson two weeks from tonight, and in three weeks from tonight, it will be a Q&A, and it will go like this. And Carolyn and I have talked about this too. Uh, we, we are totally transparent here. The, the idea is for you to submit questions to both of us, and we will both answer them. But the way we want you to do that is we're not going to raise hands and answer questions because 
sometimes those can be sensitive questions and you know somebody asks a question so like what do you do and and everybody's going like this so we don't want that so you can either email the questions uh, into the office you can write them out and put them in that box but Jessica has uh, devised uh, an apparatus to where you can be totally anonymous and she's got a place on the internet and we'll get instructions from her later but that's in three weeks but I did want you to let I did want to let you know that 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 uh, we will both answer your questions, and I know that you will play nice. <laughs>